Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Here's another uh, Talk History episode. Uh, today we're going to cover episodes 62 and 63, so I'll just call this uh, 63B, if that's okay with everyone. Um, my guest today uh, isn't a history podcaster like I've had before and ones I'll have in the future, but he was involved in a project that involved two topics closest to my heart, World War II and sci-fi. How could we not meet? So with us today is Luke Whitehorn. How are you doing today, Luke? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm doing okay. And Luke was involved in the uh, movie Iron Sky. I hope you checked it out. hope you got a chance to see it. Uh, but he was in, involved in the, and I'm not sure what you call it over there. I'll just, on this side of the pond, I'll just say special effects. Yeah, Does that vi- sound right? Vi- visual effects. Visual effects. Yeah. I'm terribly sorry. It's okay, it. so. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, good. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement in that movie? Okay, um, yeah. Uh, I was part of the visual effects team uh, that worked out of a small town called Tampere in Finland. Uh, Finland was where all the visual effects were done. And uh, I guess the, the visual effects of the film were split roughly into sort of two categories, I suppose you could call them. Uh, one of those was what's called uh, set extensions. And because the film was done on such a small budget, what they actually did was they just built the set uh, in about a five-meter radius around the actors, and everything right. else that you see is computer-generated. Um, wow. Yeah, which is uh, some pretty cool work. But I didn't do that part of the stuff, that part of the visual effects. I did uh, the spaceships flying around and shooting and exploding and things like that. So That was uh, the best part, yeah. Yes, that's what yeah. I thought. It's, <laughs> it was the most difficult part. <laughs> And they can check out some of your work at uh, LukeWhitehorn.com, see some of the photos and stuff like that. I think I was looking at it. Yeah, that will have my latest showreel on and a breakdown of some visual effects. However, it does contain spoilers. So if you, if anyone out there is tempted to actually see the film, uh, see that film first before you go to my site. Otherwise, There, you've, you've been warned. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and I also want to second your motion earlier about the fact that I'm not a history podcaster. I am, <laughs> in, in this aspect anyway, I'm just professionally some guy that you know. So prepare for me to potentially say very stupid things. That's okay. to just make me look even smarter, which is, you know, a, the only reason I need to have you on. But, you <laughs> know, it's, it's all my show. <laughs> exactly. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. No, but um, you and I, uh, I think you listened to some of the podcasts. You emailed me and we had a conversation going. And so you have a love of history and that kind of thing. And I just thought it would be neat to, to go in a different angle and just bring someone on um, almost like a listener, but uh, a mm. well-informed listener. Not, not that I would be opposed to having a listener on the talk history in the future, I think that could be pretty cool. But so I just wanted to go in a little bit different direction. So that's why I contacted you and asked you to to be with us today. You should try that one week. Have an ill-informed listener on. There we go. <laughs> I would come across as totally brilliant. But anyway, so so you've listened to episode sixty-two and sixty-three. Yes. And, uh, yes. So so where would you like to just jump in and and start? Yeah. Well, I was going to say one of the things that stuck in my mind was um, it was Graziani. That, mm-hmm. that guy, 
or it just I'm not sure whether it's Graziani himself or the Italians generally, but it was his his exceptionally timid advance into Egypt is still it's quite astounding how much he didn't advance. I mean, he was pretty much browbeaten by Mussolini into advancing as far as he did. What was it like 62 miles or something like that? Right. Yeah. At, at which point he was just like, oh, no, I, I simply must stop. Because, you know, it, it, it's it's weird to think how he could have not at least like want to try and emulate his German counterparts or because clearly that that was the way to actually win victories was to sort of storm through your enemy. I mean, especially if you outnumber them so greatly. However, yeah. he he also did have maybe good reason because um, I was reading on. Uh, Wikipedia, I'm afraid to say. Sorry, everyone. Uh, <laughs> just about Graziani himself. And he... I'm not sure whether he was completely incompetent or just er- erring on the side of caution, perhaps a bit too much. But he knew that his force was not quite as mechanised as may, as his British counterparts, even though the number disparity was, was great in terms of infantry. Right. I think his, right. maybe he was worried about his equipment or... Simply not being being able to to make a dent in the British line. It's difficult to tell because he, obviously he never advanced further than those those sixty two sixty three miles. Right. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, actually, you bring up a very good thought that you, you bring up a really good point that I didn't even think about was it's he, so he, go, he you know like you said he. Mussolini basically had to threaten him with his job before he made any movement at all. Okay, so he goes a couple, you know, he goes into uh, into Egypt. Um, he's still on the outskirts. He hasn't really challenged the British. But you made a you made a good point. It's not like he tried. He threw his forces at them. He he got he got hurt and he got bloodied and he pulled back. I mean, there was mm-hmm. no contest. He he was basically his artillery was bombing positions the british had already abandoned whether he knew it or not he knew they were going to retreat in general because yeah. his reconnaissance was telling him but but you made a very good point i mean it's not like he tried he got his he got his butt kicked and then pushed back i mean he never even really tried um and that's the part i i really didn't focus on in those two episodes but i guess i should have that oh my goodness this guy just didn't he had all these forces he had all these weapons he had uh double the artillery had uh, bigger and better mm. air force but here's where it's really it really gets interesting the further the longer that he waits the better the the british get in their positions and their manpower and their their tanks and things like that so the longer he waits the worse it got it would have gotten for him if he had attacked so the real weird irony is that if he had hit early mm. on even if he would have lost a lot of men which no one likes to do he had the numbers he could have taken losses and still pushed on the british line and pushed them back but every day that he waited it, it would have been it would have been worse and worse for him yeah. so yeah i guess at the end it's best that he after a certain point that he didn't do it at all yeah maybe that's it maybe he he hesitated and then he just thought well i've I've hesitated now so now i definitely can't move but he certainly didn't try and blitz um even if uh like you you mentioned he he may have lost a lot of men if he if if he just threw everything at the british um this was not a guy who was um renowned for sort of caring for 
human life. I'm not sure whether that is that is explicit to uh, the lives of his enemies. I'm not sure how much he cared for his own troops, um, right. but it's, it's certainly debatable. He was certainly an, an unpleasant guy and a, and a staunch fascist because I think he, yeah. he stuck with Mussolini to the to the bitter end. Um, but he was pol- but he was politically shrewd enough to keep up his pretense of hey hey Mussolini I'm going to go I'm going to oh once this road and my water lines are secure oh I'm going to mm-hmm. move and but so at least he was shrewd enough to at least say go through the motions of saying those things. Yeah, um, yeah, that thing about the water lines was interesting as well. Uh, yeah, so you got to think getting supplies <laughs> when you're trying to wield an army that's really quite big. You, it's got to be got to be tough so you you got to yeah. have like your your fuel and your water lines brought forward um which i, I was right I'm, that made me think like maybe he's just like an old guard kind of guy too sort of entrenched in the first world war style of of fighting and he he just never got the blitz mindset at all so he was never going to attack the british like in any significant fashion. Maybe he was just waiting for them to attack him so he could wear them down. I don't know. Right. But that was not his orders from Il Duce, and he just clearly wasn't going to do what was expected of him. But then again, he wanted the position and everything that came with the position. He just wasn't willing to, or he wasn't going to do what was told, what he was told to do. And he should have been, you know, replaced with someone else. But Mm. that's where Mussolini's flaws come in. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, actually, because um, it was the 10th Army under Balbo originally, but then I heard right. Right, he got killed in a friendly fire incident. Or yeah, he got he, he, his plane got shut down by Italian um, AA fire, and Balbo was, was a lot more of um, what Graziani wasn't. He was certainly more driven. He was more organized. He was more of a professional sh- soldier. And if he had not had died, if he had not had died, excuse me, and uh, he led the 10th and he – he would have hit the British early on. Um, it could have been a very different story for a very long time, but uh, mm. fate or whatever you want to call it, uh, he was removed and the Italians had to deal with Graziani. Well, yeah, that sort of uh, opens up an interesting what-if possibility. Exactly. <laughs> they, they might not have needed Rommel, so you never know. You never no. know. Yeah, there was a – because I've got a, a – a book here which is a collection of essays called like what if and one of them i went straight to the second world war one of course and it's actually written by john keegan um nice uh, yeah he's a tremendous writer uh and he's writing about how hitler could have potentially won the second world war i know this is sort of going sort of beyond the scope of this uh the topic for this podcast but hey sure just edit it out if you like exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but he he says that basically uh Hitler should have, if he would have given significant enough forces to Panzer Army Africa, and he could have driven the British straight out of Egypt and up into Syria, and connected right. up with maybe the uh, the Vichy French up there, and just driven across to Iraq, where there's loads of juicy oil just waiting for him. Oh yeah. In, in any significant force, like the the British probably couldn't have done much about it. Um, yeah. And he didn't and, have to hit the Soviet Union when he did. He could have waited a year or two. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because then the, Germany would have been in a very interesting position to actually take uh, – yeah, if they'd driven up to the Caucasus as well. They yeah. would have been in a very interesting position to actually do the, like, the world's 
biggest encirclement manoeuvre right. on, on Russia. And, uh, yeah, it makes you wonder what could have been, and especially if, if the Italians under Belbo had actually hit the British hard and fast. It's, yeah. I don't know, it's difficult to see how well the – how different things would have been because the Italians, despite um, their reputation, could actually fight when they were – yeah, when they when they, when they were to. under Rommel, exactly. When they were under Rommel, they did. Uh, I mean, they met his expectations pretty much, and uh, uh, they were fierce fighters under him. They just needed the right person leading the way, mm. um, and you know, a professional soldier basically leading the way. Yeah, it was about half of the the entire Africa Corps, I think, was Italian. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's that's yeah. not the the Italian fighting spirit can't in in the battles that he that were under Rommel can't really be ignored. Um, anyway, I digress, as I do. Okay. I'm going to look at my but, notes. <laughs> okay, you go right ahead. Um, yeah, was there anything else you wanted to, to chat no, about? I think, I think we put a good cap on that one. Yeah, cool. It's kind of a tough tough situation. I mean, for the... I don't know, it's, it's difficult for me to, as a British person as well, like, what, what do you think about the, the Vichy French? It's It's a sort of... Semi sore spot, I suppose. Oh, um, absolutely. And uh, but I don't know exactly what the Vichy French were supposed to do because they were kind of pro-Nazi. But support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Got to do it, don't want to do it, but got to do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Yeah, well, there were elements, but what it, what it came down to for Churchill and the British was that um, you say you promised me, you know, Admiral Darlan, the um, in charge of the uh, the French Navy, you promised me you're going to keep this out of German, uh, all your your amazing mm. ships out of German hands. But at the end of the day, they're going to be your political masters. So how can you guarantee me they won't get what you have when they're the ones who can take from you, you know, any time they want? So yeah. the the logic was just not there um, for the British. And so they did what they had to do, which yeah. you think would have given Hitler his answer even before he asked it. Okay, Britain, are you going to negotiate? Well, if they're willing to shoot on their uh, ally five minutes ago, you know they're yeah. they're they're, they're, in they're the certainly going to shoot against you. <laughs> exactly. Then he should have known. Um, not that it would have probably changed much, but he should have known right then and there. Uh, maybe tried um, Sea Lion earlier um, in the year, that kind of stuff, but he didn't, and that's that's how it went. Yeah. Unfortunately, it looks like Sea Lion was practically impossible for him at any point. Yeah, but he might, he might have tried it, which if he would have tried it, and it would have failed, I think it would have failed. Um, uh, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened for the rest of the war. I mean, you know, like, like you said, what if it quickly would have changed the entire uh, scope of the war, and this could be a very different conversation we're having right now. Yeah, <laughs> very different. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I do feel for the everyone involved in that situation because – Apparently for the French sailors as well, because to be shot on by by the British has got to be a bit of a sting. They they were given 
warning after warning or ultimatum after ultimatum, which basically said, like, guys, please see this from our point of view. Yeah. You, you, we cannot allow the, – the Navy – from Britain's point of view as well, the Navy is what they've got. It's what's stopping – Yeah, that's all they got at this point. Yeah. I mean Britain's always had a, a crappy army. Um, the Navy's been their thing to sort of say, you know, right. come and get us. We've got an enormous moat, which you can't cross. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so Britain had to retain that. They absolutely had to. So they said to the French, give it either, what you can either do is give us your ships, you know, join us, join us and continue the fight. Like all of these perfectly rationable and reasonable requests. And yeah. as I said, like, if you don't do that, we, it was it is with much regret. It was worded like this it was with, with much regret that we will have to take matters into our own hands and basically put your ships out of action. So I don't know what they expected them to do. I guess that Vichy French were just calling their bluff and uh, didn't work out so well for them. Right. Well, what makes it hard for... What makes it hard to feel too much sympathy for Vichy is that when Poland was taken over, the government gets out of there. Okay, they're the government in exile. When um, when I guess Holland, when Holland gets out, there the Queen gets on a ship and you know they go over there and they're in London or wherever, uh, government exile. The Belgium, even though the King decided to stay there, the government said, okay, see it, they go um, to to England, uh, to Britain, mm-hmm. and they're government exile. But the French don't do that. They stay there and. Uh, not really join the Nazis, but there's a certain level of collaboration. And so mm. they, they kind of get um, the reputation to a certain degree justly. Being collaborative. You know, collaborative. Yeah, 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 because everybody else took off and said, no, it's a principle of the thing. We're going to leave. We're going to go to Britain. We're going to still somehow resist you. And France did not do that. So it's it's tough for them. They're just in a very tough, almost impossible situation. They, just like everyone else, made decisions, and now they have to – at that point, they had to live with their decisions. Yeah. I think as, as well that maybe an indicator of the amount that they were in with the, the, the Nazis, and I don't know how true this is. I, I think it is true, but I haven't got a source on hand, so I apologize to my, my French and Italian friends if this is wrong. Uh, but as far as the deportation of the – Jews were concerned. Vichy France deported their Jews, um, but Italy did not. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the well, the Italians trying to—I don't know—the the government under Mussolini trying to do in, anything in an organized fashion is very hard for them. <laughs> but but he literally would make a law, and then he would make a whole bunch of exceptions. Or if he said, "Okay, we're going to do this," the Jews are going to be this class citizens or whatever. If someone just came up to him and said, "Oh, my my son or my daughter," and they would show a couple of tears, he'd be like, "Okay, well, this law doesn't apply to you," and he would write something out. And he made so many exceptions to his own law that mm. there wasn't that consistency. But then again, uh, you got to think in his own heart, he just wasn't hating. Uh, the Jews are blaming them from all the world, all the world's problems, like Hitler was. It just wasn't in there, in in him like that. And so, yeah. you can't really expect him to pursue a policy that didn't uh, emanate from him. Yeah, he he is such an interesting character. Ever since I I heard your the the podcasts you did about him, I've mm-hmm. I've been dying to like see a uh, a movie of his life or read a biography or something because he seems like such a complicated person who's not necessarily completely evil. But then again, maybe that's just because he's standing next to Hitler most of the time and 
I suppose anyone's, exactly. anyone's going to look good in that light. Yeah. I think the worst thing or probably the most accurate thing I've heard about Mussolini was that he had the mentality and the personality of a used car salesman, <laughs> but at the same time he wanted to be a world leader. And when you put those two together, it just doesn't work. You've got to be bold and or ruthless, and he wasn't yeah. either one. Uh, yeah, that the used car salesman thing does kind of fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, don't trust him. You look at him sideways. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, that does reminds me of another question I had as well, um, mm-hmm. which was that why was why was he, he so interested, Mussolini? This is in in sort of this empire building in the first place because this was at the time when empires were sort of you know, kind of at their, the the end of their lives or starting to sort of wither away, especially the British Empire. Um, right. And it wasn't an empire that was held together by men. The days of an empire being under a, a single person are gone. It's like it's the British Empire, and they have all these possessions uh, all over the world. You're right, it's coming to an end. But maybe he was a throwback to a, uh, to an earlier era. But at the, hmm. but again, it was to, he, he was an awesome dreamer, and he had this vivid imagination, and he just pictured Italian troops marching all over Africa and in, in the Middle East. I mean, he, it just... It probably just sounded good to him. He probably imagined what he would wear and what the horse that he would ride in on. But you know, I mean, but that I think that's who he was, and yeah. it just sounded good. And since he's in charge of the country, you got to semi listen to this guy. Yeah, and I suppose at the time that kind of rhetoric's going to appeal to a lot of people who don't necessarily well, think too much about you know <laughs> what, what is this going to achieve for us and or where are the raw materials in north africa i did have a brief look for things like maybe they're looking for raw materials but i, could, I couldn't really find any information about what his actual goals were besides takeover stuff for no yeah, just reason. Yeah, when I went to uh, Rome on my honeymoon a long time ago, ten years ago, there was there was huge maps on the wall right outside the Colosseum, and you can see the the uh, Ro- the Italian Empire and the Roman Empire uh, at different phases. And I think there was just something like that. He just wanted to see a giant wall on the map, and it just showed entire huge sections of the map under Italian control, and it would just feed whatever he needed. Uh, and he just, he was just trying to feed a need, um, and it was just on a very large scale because he was the leader of the country. Yeah, just an ego thing then, I guess. Yeah. This, yeah. The, re- the reasons that the Romans got, well, managed to advance so far is because, at least technologically, militarily speaking anyway, they were, they were far in advance of, of anyone that they came across. They just militarily could wipe out people. Yeah, just a very sound military machine. And by the time 1940 comes, the the Italian people have changed a lot, and they're all about enjoying life and uh, spending time with friends. And uh, that's what I saw in Rome, and they just wanted to have a good time. And and there's nothing wrong with that, because if if we all live like that, hey, there's no war going on. Yeah, which is great. In fact, yeah, Yeah. that reminds me, in in my grandfather, I... My, my grandfather was in the uh, original 7th Armored Division as well. He was involved in all of the stuff we're actually talking about. Um, cool. Yeah, I've got all of his uh, possessions that he, his army stuff, um, <laughs> including a completely authentic Nazi uh, swastika flag, which freaks people out whenever you get out. <laughs> I would imagine it would. Yeah, it's very large. Um, but there's, he's also got a, 
I put together a photo album of all of his pictures. I do need to scan them, actually, and I'll send them to you. But there's loads uh, in Egypt, absolutely loads. Um, he, Oh, yeah, he had a um, serviceman's handbook. I think mm-hmm. it was a North Africa-specific one. And it talked... Oh, wow. oh, no, no, it wasn't. It was a, it was a We Are About to Invade Italy handbook. And I read just the very beginning uh, uh, opening monologue bit in it. And it's it made a point of saying that the Italian people were our allies in the First World War. And I, I just got the sense from it was that these these people have been dragged into this war unwillingly. And, you know, let's all be nice. <laughs> right. That, <laughs> which, that's a very good point, though. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was quite a nice thing to say, considering you're blowing them up and shooting them. <laughs> Right. When I went to the uh, D-Day Memorial in Bedford, Virginia, there was a handbook for American service servicemen who were about to land on the continent, and it was and it was saying, "If you are captured, these are your rights." And I couldn't help but think, "Well, you're fighting Nazis. You're not going to have any rights. But if you want to write a book, hey, that's fine. But yeah. uh, you know, they were they were fighting they were fighting uh, for everything, um, and so." Uh, I just I just found it weird that, that someone would sit down and take the time to write that book when you're fighting the Nazis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, die, die in the hard Nazis, SS. If you came across them, as you know from your your research on uh, uh, the Battle of France, uh, that uh, they lock you in a shed and shoot you, some of them. But um, Yeah, exactly. But I get a feeling as well that some of the Wehrmacht were not quite like that. Right, yeah. There, there were honorable soldiers, and then there mm. was the SS, and you know, it was a very confusing time, and everybody had to, everybody had to do the best they could with their yeah. decisions. That's one thing my grandfather said about the Germans. I remember asking him once when I was very young, um, "Do you did you do you hate the Germans? Did you hate the Germans?" And he said, "No, I respected them." Um, mm. Yeah, <laughs> so he, however, didn't say the same about the Italians. He said they wouldn't fight. <laughs> <laughs> to which yeah. I thought, I thought to myself, well, yeah, neither would I, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, different time back then. So right, different people. Very brave people. I don't think I could do the same. Why did Mussolini decline Hitler's initial offer of panzers and aircraft? Again, yeah, no, that's kind of a hypothetical. <laughs> I don't. You're not Mussolini, so right, <laughs> it right, may be difficult to answer, but. I guess it may well, may but, come to the same thing we were talking about earlier to do with it being an ego thing. Yeah, I think it was. Um, you know, by the time you get to episode sixty-three, he's already officially turned him down. Mm. And and not to ruin uh, the story for anybody, even though we all roughly know the story, when the when the um, British uh, royal the Royal Navy really starts hitting um, the Italian Navy in November of forty and March of forty-one, that's when. Uh, Hitler pretty much just says to Mussolini, "Okay, from now on, I'm calling the shots. You're going to do exactly what I say with your, with your navy, the whole thing." Um, you're, you're right in that he wanted a parallel war. He had his, he had his ego. He wanted his own empire. He didn't want to have to, um, to rely on anyone else. Um, but at the same time, you've got to remember that 
Mussolini came to power years. He came to power, I think, in 1922, years before Hitler did. And so for the for the longest time, he was the big man on the stage. He was Mr. International, if you will, and he caused um, uh, uh, splashes all over the place. He was a big man, and, and a lot of people um, either respected him or admired him, even if they hated him or feared him. Mm-hmm. And so it's only it's only 1940. Hitler's only been in power since 1933, and it, but the war's only been going on for a year. And I don't think that Mussolini was ready to give up being his own statesman, being a great statesman in his sphere. And he wanted his own sphere, and he wanted people to come to him and let he let him be their problem solvers because he was this intellectual. Um, yeah. But he just literally wanted his own theater of war. It was to be a parallel, nothing more. Because if you think about it, if they had really talked and really shared with each other what they wanted and made appropriate plans, they could have been a lot more effective. But it gets to the point where the British, all by themselves, pretty much take, um, they hurt, uh, Italy, um, the Italian military on land and at sea. So the Germans said, oh, my God, you're embarrassing us. We have to step in. And they literally did. And pretty soon the Italians were taking orders. And that was and to directly answer your question. Mussolini knew that if the Germans came in, you wouldn't be able to get them out. And he was right. Yeah. But he couldn't do he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. It just makes me think that, like, well, initially what made me think of that question is like you, you think that Mussolini was – Despite his many deficiencies, he's not a stupid guy. He got to where right. he is because he's shrewd enough. And you'd think that he'd know, especially he's a World War One veteran. He and you know he's an army guy. He knows right. the capabilities of the Italian army, and he probably knows that the Italian army won't be able to stand up to the to the British. Um, so he, yeah, and bear in mind that this is the Italian army that. When he served with in the First World War, they got beaten by the Austro-Hungarians, um, Austria- and the Austro-Hungarians were the army that everyone else beat quite badly. <laughs> They're like so that puts Italy pretty much at the bottom of the tier of effectiveness in yeah. in terms of armies. So it just and makes it, you think like that he would have t- what what I would have thought he would have done was sort of been a bit more shrewd and sort of accepted this accepted some sort of assistance where he knows he's he's not terribly effective um and and then sort of spun it in a certain way or used his political shrewdness to sort of um bargain with the with the germans because it's really his army's terrible ineffectiveness which put him in the position where he couldn't refuse anyway maybe if he'd gone with with german help initially he would have had a bit more bargaining power when it came to saying, okay, you guys can leave now. But. Exactly, yeah. But w- you got to think that with Graziani just sitting there and Hitler comes up for the second time and says, hey, how would you like 100 or 200 panzers? It would be like, yes, please, thank you. I mean, you know, and hey, I'm going to offer you some some, some uh, planes to take on the British Navy in the Mediterranean. I mean, oh, my God, why wouldn't you? Um, mm. Why wouldn't you take that? It just the more material you have the better whether it's good material or bad or better than yours but yeah. um why wouldn't you take that but but uh, you made me think of something else in in 1940 um just because the germans are, have kind of reversed fighting tactics and let's put our tanks in front get them to smash resistance and then bring the infantry up to hold and then send the tanks on more i mean this is still kind of new to everybody and even the germans even hitler was surprised Mm. and impressed with their own victory 
factories. And so maybe Mussolini is from World War One, and he doesn't really know – he doesn't really have a firm grasp about how ineffective his troops are going to be. Oh, so you just line up and you just attack. The Germans make it look easy, but you and I know there's tons of professionalism mm. and organization behind that front line. And we so have maybe hindsight. Just, <laughs> exactly. Maybe he just kind of sensed that, oh, that's how it's going to go. Yeah. And maybe he did not have a firm grasp about how ineffectual his own men would be against the British. Yeah, and it also he did have overwhelming numerical superiority and material superiority already. So I, from his point of view, he may be thinking, well, what do I need any more, you know, artillery and troops for an exactly. aircraft? I've already got over. I've already got like the three to one odds that are needed for for a breakthrough. Right, um, but to, but they never got a chance to do it. So because because Graziani never ever moved except for backwards. <laughs> yeah, good job there. Um, <laughs> I guess this is along similar lines as well. I'm sort of asking you to be psychic about uh, foreign uh, oh, dead fascist leaders, which is tremendously difficult even for you, right? Sure. Um, but why why did he not move on Gibraltar? It makes you mm-hmm. – although actually you did just explain that in your last podcast. But, but still, it, it makes you wonder what would have happened had they sided with um, the, the, the Axis – forces and right. take, taken Gibraltar. But I, I, I didn't know how, how much of a bad shape um, Spain may have been in after their, after their civil war. They may have been in actually no shape to do anything about anything. Yeah, but the, the, the truly ironic thing is that Franco's cautiousness actually – you know, he's going to survive the war. He's going to go on and he's going to be the, uh, I don't know what to call it, dictator or leader of Spain for quite some time. Um, so actually it's kind of ironic that he survives a war. Uh, he doesn't take anyone's side. But you would think that he would have said to Hitler, um, no, I won't join you, but I will give you permission to launch a raid against that British position. I mean, yeah. Hitler was asking, hey, why don't you join us? And But he didn't even say, no, but I give you permission. He was totally... He had what he wanted, and everything else was just i 'll get it if i can if i 'll get it if I can if I can if I have to work for it if I have to earn it if I have to cross that line i 'm just not willing to do that but you've got to wonder how much um, the American diplomat poured into franco 's ear about hey you know look at the the industrial might of America you know it 's only a matter of time before we come in the war. you take that you combine it with the British Navy I mm-hmm. mean come on, you know it 's going to happen, but he probably went there with those words uh, from that diplomat, that ambassador ringing in his ear, but at the end of the day, he had what he wanted, he had Spain, and he he was just watching what was going on, yeah. It does seem strange, though, for for a fascist leader to sort of stop and be content. And absolutely, say, oh, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm, I've got what I want now, and now I'm absolutely fine with it. And, and with regards to um, the, the the American ambassador just saying, "Hey guys, you better not do anything we don't like." It's, exactly. That that may have been the case, but then again, it makes you think about um, the, the the consensus at the at the time was like. My goodness, these axes, well, at least the Germans anyway, are pretty much unstoppable, and they're going to take over absolutely everything, especially after the fall of France. I mean, it's, right. it's I can't even imagine what the, the shock must have been to everyone at the time that, like, Germany took out France in such a short amount of time. So 
yeah. I, I guess it's to his credit then that he didn't get t- swept up in the euphoria of the moment and just say, hey, yeah, let's invade everywhere because we're we're completely unstoppable. Let's yeah. let's seal off the let's attack Gibraltar. Let's seal off the British. Let's take all of their possessions and dismantle their empire and take it for ourselves. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah, it's amazing that if he says no to Hitler, when Hitler's at his height, it looks like Britain's about to fall or be invaded any day. France was knocked out in six weeks. The Italians are marching on, or, you know, supposedly marching on Egypt. If he's going to say no to Hitler in October of 1940, there's no other time that he would say yes, because this was the high water mark in so many ways. Obviously, yeah. the whole Russian campaign is still to come, but this is the high water mark. I mean, it looks like they can't lose even if they wanted to. And if he's going to say no now, uh, he's going to say no forever. And you made another good point. You got Hitler, you have Mussolini, they're fascists. They're going to grab everything they can. Here's, um, um, Franco with the title of, he's had, he had many titles, but if you call him a fascist and yet he refuses to march forward to spread the word of fascism or whatever, mm-hmm. maybe fascist isn't the correct word. Maybe yeah. he's just a dictator of his That's country. That's exactly and, what I thought. <laughs> yeah. He's just, I got it. I, I'm, I'm good. Thanks guys. Y'all, y'all have fun. You know, yeah. I, I, I got what I want. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, if the fascist states had actually worked together more, they probably yeah. would have been stronger, which it, that would exactly. be the fascist ideology, which they didn't follow. <laughs> yeah, and we could be talking about a World War II that lasted 10 years, 15 years. Um, but what it came down to for me, and this is this is truly unromantic in, in whatever sense that war, uh, you know, battle is romantic, but the industrial base of the U.S. and Britain with its empire – I think would eventually won as long as Britain can't be knocked out. And for the reasons we've already spoken of, they can't be. I think they, uh, the allies would have won it just, but it could have been a very scary, uh, much longer story with, with many more millions of deaths and suffering, um, than what it was. And, you know, thank, thank goodness that Mussolini was inept and, uh, Franco was cautious and just decided to stay within his own border. Yeah, very much so. That reminds me actually, there's a, one of the books I've got, the um, it's out of print now. Uh, I think I told you about it. It's about that exact thing about the how the Allies' material, massive material superiority is really what um, won the war for them. Even even the Allies themselves admitted that if they come up against the Germans in anything like equal numbers, they're going to lose every time. So right. they just have to sort of batter them down and batter them into submission with just overwhelming material superiority it reminds me of it's a saying of i can't remember who said it maybe michael whitman or something it's something along the lines of um when they're talking about allied tanks it's just like one one german tank can take out nine allied tanks but the problem is there's always a tenth (laughs) (laughs) and that's all it takes yeah yeah um but there's a the the book is called brute force um and uh, like I said, it's out of print. I've got a copy here. However, I've in in the second-hand bookshop near here, there is another copy has turned up, which I can get for you if you like and send it your way. 
Yeah, I think you need to pop over and uh, go get that for me, please. <laughs> I shall be done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and there was something in particular that you you said that made me think of something because I did some research on the on the Matilda two tanks, mm-hmm. and they were so slow. And it's it's this right, right. It's 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 a shame. Like the the Allies were. Again, going back to this, how they won through material superiority because their tactics weren't terribly great and their doctrines weren't terribly great either. Because here we've got a a Matilda II tank, which is a pretty new tank at the time. I think it was Mm -hmm. designed in 40 or 39, somewhere around that time. But its it's maximum off-road speed is nine miles an hour. Right. And when... I just wonder if it gave them pause for thought when they're they're planning Operation Compass, and they've got lots of these lovely Matilda two tanks. But the the Italian Air Force, if it just goes up and spots them coming towards the uh, the Italian positions, these tanks are going to be so slow because they were built as a as an infantry tank, I think, which is First World War style, which is completely exactly. outdated at the time. It's they're designed to just sort of crawl along with the the infantry, which is why they thought the low speed wasn't too bad. But they've just got lots of armor and a fairly hefty gun on them. Right. Just, they, maybe they got lucky as as well that the Italians didn't spot them because if they'd have brought their air force down on all of those tanks, yeah, they they could have done some serious damage. What, what 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 I think what is interesting to note is that the designers of the tank, even though it was the uh, the Mark II, the d- designers of the tank were were going off of the experiences from World War One, and, and they're like, this thing, yeah, it may be slow, but it is so thick, it's going to be able to take a lot of damage and be able to, or a lot of hits and not be damaged, and mm. and get our get our infantry close in where they can do what they need to do. And um, one, the the British are going to find out very quickly that the Italian bombing uh, on land is no better than trying to bomb Italian <laughs> ships in the Mediterranean. And two, the like I, I just barely touched it in um, one of the episodes, that the Italian tanks were so darn light that, um, you know, just their anti-tank guns could puncture yeah. this thing. So if, if the Matilda can get a decent shot at an Italian tank, they're going to they're gonna destroy it you know, with one or two shots or whatever. So, yeah, it's certainly not as sexy or flashy or as fast as a Panzer zooming through France, you know, knocking France out of the war. But it's going to get the job done. And for people who didn't know how the war was going to turn out or how it was going to be fought in World War II, they did a pretty good job of planning something. They really didn't know how it was going to be, you know? Yeah, but they, yeah, that's true. They did have faster tanks as well, cruiser tanks, which were right. sort of zipping around. So yeah, yeah I suppose it's useful. just evolutionarily developing tanks and seeing seeing what works best. It's just yeah, and those got their butt kicked in France, and so those are pretty much going to be used for reconnaissance. Oh, the cruisers. Uh, yeah, oh. the cruisers because they were so thin and they they couldn't stand up to the Panzers, and they said, okay, well we'll we'll take them to the desert, but this is pretty much to dash around, mm. maybe put out fires and that you know that kind of stuff, um, firefights, that kind of stuff, but mostly for reconnaissance. Let's get in there, see what's going on, and get out, report it, and then send in the Matildas. Yeah, you reminded me as well of the um, the, the the Italian M11 tanks. Um, yeah, there's a program I'm fond of, the, the Battlefield series, which I just think is fantastic. And mm-hmm. uh, in in one episode of that, <laughs> the guy says with his wonderfully dry English voice, 
you know, that's completely factual. And he just sort of mentions in his, in his factual diatribe how the Italian tank is, like, widely considered to be the worst tank of the entire war. Yeah. That's a pretty, pretty terrible badge of honor to be wearing. Um, yeah. It doesn't... There's no comeback for that. You're absolutely right. I have nothing to say on this one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talk, yeah, you talked about it in the podcast as well, about how they, you've, you've got a, a, their main gun didn't move. Like, it, yeah. I think it had like a 15-degree traversal on either side or something like that. It was it was pathetically right. small. It was it had no armor. It had a rotating sort of machine gun on the top, which was useful against nothing, really. And it was they were just absolutely, they were wiped out. Some of them were captured as well, I think, and pressed into service by Australians. They painted some uh, lovely big uh, kangaroos on the side. Yeah, please don't shoot us. Yeah. yeah, until they ran out of fuel and they just dumped them. Right. But in, in Graziani's defense, he did have a mobile brothel with him when he was on. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally serious. I'm totally serious. He brought that with him. A mobile brothel? Is that just, that's just a woman, isn't it? <laughs> Out. Um, well, it was several because there were other officers, but no, he literally, that was part of his uh, uh, entourage. I don't know what to say at that yes, point. That's, but, a, uh, that's a better way of putting it. It's an entourage, <laughs> mobile brothel. But, so he wasn't moving anywhere. His tanks were crap. Women with legs. He had, he had priorities. He's Italian. What can I tell you? My goodness me. That man's a strange fellow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember saying that the, the, one of the first, they they went to a town that had like one shop and two brothels. <laughs> yeah, and he, brought, and he brought his own. So clearly yeah. the Italians are fine. They're they're doing fine. Yeah, maybe that's why he stopped. He was just he was just <laughs> relaxing. He was busy taking in the sea air. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I'm, I'm still puzzled by the fact that why he would build a water pipe. I mean, do you think that was that was some sort of level of procrastination on his part? I think so, and also arrogance. If you think you're going to be there long enough and literally take everything over and own it for the next 30 years, yeah, you're going to want a water pipe. But come on, this is a mobile war. It's 1940. Move, move, move. And yeah. and he was just using it as an excuse. And I'm sitting there trying to think, and I am not an expert on this at, at all. I need to do research. But if you build a road in the desert and some wind comes along, it doesn't your road disappear because it gets covered by sand. I mean, unless you make it like 15 feet high or something. More than likely. Yeah. Unless yeah, it's yeah, mean, mounted on stone or, or right, something. So what's I the don't point? know. It, it, maybe it was, I don't know. I don't know anything about this and I'm sorry. I should do it research, made out but of, uh, metal, I think metal. Uh, grids, yeah. Like, the, like yeah. the temporary runways with sort of metal slates so, put together. Exactly. It is, and I'm like, oh, oh my! I mean, how is this road not going to disappear the next time there's a sandstorm or yeah. something? But again, I just need to do more research. Yeah, it's it just seems it, the whole thing's a complete farce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as well we know now. An Italian tragedy. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at a, a plan at the moment for Operation Compass, and their the, the disposition is so strange as well of their their camps where the Italians have got a whole bunch of camps that are completely separated by however many miles. Um, yeah. I can't remember how many miles, something in the region of 20 miles or something like 20 or 30 miles between the camps on the coast around City Barini and the other ones in the sort of the, the southwest, the, basically the huge gap that the 7th Armoured Brigade or division right. managed to drive straight through because they don't check. 
Yeah. Like, why would you pre-split your forces? Like, that's a that's a gift to to your enemy. <laughs> like, that's what that's what armies usually have to fight to achieve is splitting of forces. But exactly. No, they just, did it for them. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it and looks I like a this... trap as well. Yeah, but it wasn't it was just it was just it was a reverse trap it was just incompetence no but what what richard uh general o'connor was going to figure out was all the tracks to the camps go in and out of the camp from the northwest corner and he's he's thinking okay well there's mines all other places except for the northwest corner so that's when he makes his plan he literally has all the tanks and the armor go in the northwest corner of each one you think Graziani would have changed it up okay in this camp the access is over here no but it's all uniform so it's like okay everybody go in the northwest corner there's no mines there going and just blow the hell out of them and it freaking worked but they were the, the Italians were trapped by the mines all other the three fourths uh, directions around the camp you know so it just worked oh, wow. and, and i'll go in, and i'll go into great detail about that but yeah so they attacked oh, they, they attacked on the axis that the, the 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 path was into and out of the camp so the right. italians would actually be trapped by their own minefield yeah yeah you had to you had to get by the british so i'll <laughs> go in great detail but i'm like oh my god change it up do something but no no, um, but still, terrible. Richard O'Connor deserves a lot of credit for coming yeah. up with that, for executing it. It was brilliant, and that's only the beginning of what Operation Compass does. And I want to, you know, we'll say that for for that episode. But it's it's an amazing battle, and he pushes on them like no one ever thought he could. Yeah, that's pretty pretty amazing stuff. And he would yeah. be thanked by Churchill for it, I'm sure. Yes, greatly. And yeah, <laughs> that all turns out well. Yes, it does for the British anyway. Cool. Um, but the last thing I listened to was about De Gaulle in was it uh, French Equatorial uh, yeah. Africa. Um, he wanted to attack north through Chad to Libya. Like, yeah, this. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, is that that's there's no roads? Is there? <laughs> Who's going to use De Gaulle? He's De Gaulle. He doesn't need roads. He's gonna he's gonna take Gabon to the south to cover the southern flank, push through Chad, go all the way through Libya. As we all know, you know it's mostly d- desert except for when you get to the coast or whatever. He's gonna push through that, and he's gonna hit the Italians from the south to hell with the British just standing there waiting. You know the the the, the steering contest going on between the Italians and the British. He's just gonna push through Chad, push through Central Africa, the the continent of Africa, and, and hit the Italians and the south and he's going to do it all you just got to love those kind the brass on that man you just have to admire that i oh i certainly do i just didn't know <laughs> if it was feasible or not i assume it is because you know out of, out of me and de gaulle i assume de gaulle knows more about military matters than i do yeah he was ambitious he was gonna you know he was he yeah. was gonna do what he had to do to bring france back certainly on a surprise yeah. yeah no one would have expected that no. We will we'll attack them under cover of daylight. <laughs> we'll yeah. never expect that. Yeah, no one's going to look to the south. No one's going to look into the desert and expect to see the enemies coming at you. And so, hey, who knows? But that's what he was going to do. And it's just such enormous distances. Absolutely. It's a problem when, when talking about the African theater as well. It's it's so easy to sort of lose track when you're looking at maps of just the enormous distances involved. Um, yeah. And there are absolutely uh, 
tremendous as you know like they ended up with this, the seesaw battle back and forth as like supply lines got overstretched because there was there's not enough ports um yeah on the on the north african coastline um in fact i got a little interesting thing about that but it was about uh, rules of thumb for supply when supplies i'm just reading from i'm just reading verbatim from a book i've got uh, called How to Make War by James F. Donegan. Very good. Highly recommended. Um, it says, when supplies moved by sea or rail, the fuel required is not a significant factor. To move a ton of material, 100 kilometers by train uses 14 ounces of fuel. A large ship uses about half that. When material is moved by truck or air, it's a different story. By truck, 1% of the weight moved will be consumed as fuel for each 100 kilometers traveled. By air, the cost will be from 2 to 5%, depending on the type of aircraft. Uh, and then it goes on talking about helicopters, but that's not really relevant. And again, no. this is for modern warfare, but I imagine the rules of thumb are very much the same. And that really yeah. comes into play in North Africa, where you see that, that there has to be these enormous like baggage trains essentially going like a thousand kilometers over this single dirt coastal road uh, on north africa and the, the the forces just strike out as, as far as they possibly can but then they just get overstretched and the other guys obviously get closer to their port and their base yeah and then and things and then things go the other way for them because they can be resupplied yeah yeah i just well, thought that was nope. that was quite interesting at how how stark the differences between ship and, and and truck. Yeah, and all that, again, involves organization, uh, timing, that kind of stuff, and not exactly the Italian strong suit. Because even before Graziani moves out, he's you know his supply lines are at least 350 miles. And by the time he goes into to, um, Egypt and adds 60 more miles onto that, I mean, it's just you're just asking a lot, yeah. especially the times. Um, um, and it was just a, that part of war, which is so easily overlooked because it's not romantic, it's not exciting. But it's essential, and if you don't have that all taken care of, everything else is going to fall apart uh, uh, rather quickly. Absolutely. Uh, do you know what the, the Italian situation was, what Graziani's supply situation was with regards to uh, transports in the Med? Was, was uh, with the, with the British hammering him at this point, or I think? Oh yeah, his his camps were being fired upon uh, by Cuttingham, who was just off the coast. It's not like the the Italians could use their ships to to you know to sail on the edge of the Mediterranean and and load and load them as close as they can. The British aren't allowing that, so it's trucks, and it's um it's 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 hard going, and that's where the Germans didn't want to get involved at first because they knew that re resupplies and reinforcements would be hard and irregular getting to them and they really didn't want to get involved unless they majorly got involved and so that was the initial report that got back to hitler that their supply lines basically stank and we don't want to be in, involved in this unless we're really involved in this yeah i suppose that for the germans as well like getting involved is not really going to help them unless <laughs> i think the only thing they've got to gain is by driving all the way to iraq and taking some oil like we mentioned at the beginning exactly that's probably a good place to wrap it up then, I suppose. No, I nice, so. Nicely bookended, I think. Well done. We mentioned it earlier. We mentioned it now. Boom, yep. we're done. Okay. But I really do appreciate you being on. And, again, it's uh, LukeWhitehorn.com. Luke you can go there and see the things, pictures. But do not go to his website until you see the movie, unless you don't mind realizing what happens at the end of the movie, right? Uh, yeah. No, is there going to be an iron – Sky 2, with, um, with you as the main actor, the, the hero? 
I am, I think, officially the world's worst actor. <laughs> so, so that will not so happen. No. Okay, you you could be an extra. Okay, but yeah, look, I, I really, I do appreciate you spending time with us today. And uh, um, if this podcast does last years, like I think it's going to, maybe you can come on again, and we can do this uh, do this again in the future. I would be delighted to do that. That'd be great. Excellent. So thank you to Luke. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, episode 64 will be my interview with the professor from King, King's College, London. Um, I'll be talking to him in a couple of days, and I'll get that out to you. And then we'll get on with uh, Operation Compass, uh, probably episode 65, and we'll just see how much work I can get done during the holidays. So as usual, take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.